Hey guys, just a quick content warning. In one of our conversations today, there's a brief mention of losing a loved one to suicide. If you are struggling, remember you can always call the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988. And we've also linked additional resources in the show notes. Hello, 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 hello. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm Deboa Bay. And we are the hosts of this podcast, So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. Yeah, this whole season is about mental health, but today's episode is going to dig into what that means. That's right. We're looking at all the different categories and things that fall under the umbrella term of mental health as well as how the language that we use impacts how mental health is perceived. And to help us parse out those details, we're sitting down with Becca Lane, Education and Outreach Coordinator at the Philadelphia Chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But first, we are joined once again by Dr. Jayatri Das, the Chief Bioscientist at the Franklin Institute. We're going to jump into the category of mental health and the different categories of it and um, try to make some sense of it, figure it out, decompress, you know, throw it around. We're trying to just like get some more knowledge. That's why we're here with you, Dr. (laughs) And I love being here with you to talk through those (laughs) kinds of questions. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, yeah. Just teeing it off. What are the distinctions of the different types of mental health? So there's really no universal definition of different categories that like everybody agrees on. Some general categories might be thinking about mental illnesses that are more of like mood or thought disorders. You've got personality disorders. You've got developmental disorders. And then thinking about addiction as kind of another category or PTSD. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it's helpful when we're talking about these on an everyday basis to think about these categories because it can help with understanding a diagnosis or thinking about directions for treatment, finding support groups, and even in just communicating with your healthcare provider or your friends and family about what the explanation of your different behaviors or challenges might be. You know, where that ends up getting a little bit challenging is that by trying to categorize people in buckets, Sometimes the distinction between the presence or absence of a diagnosis isn't that clear. And so how exactly do you put somebody in a category? Another challenge is that sometimes people have multiple diagnoses. So putting them in one or the other might miss what those mechanisms or experiences might have in common between those different diagnoses. And then thirdly, some of these diagnoses just look very different in different people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it can be hard to categorize people. I think one of the interesting things, especially in directing where science research is going, is that there's more of an approach where instead of trying to recognize particular categories, it's really looking across diagnoses to look at how people's behaviors and symptoms fall along a spectrum. I love that. You know, one of the yeah. things that Kirsten says often is mental health is... Mental health is health. Is yeah. health. Could you expound on that a little bit? Talk about that more because I think we hear some of these terms and these labels and it could be a little bit daunting and they come along with stigmas, unfortunately. Of course they do. And it's like, they're just it's just health. It's just like, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about health and health exists on the spectrum. Right. So instead of necessarily starting with these categories, it's really thinking about all of the different ways that any of us you know, experience mental states. So thinking about 
you know, how we regulate or how we have our self-control. Thinking about when we're feeling good, when we're feeling bad, you know, how do we touch and feel and move, <laughs> right? That can be a category mm -hmm. of how we express our mental state. Thinking about our cognitive state, how we think about things, and how we interact with other people, our social interactions. Those are all kind of different ways that our mental health is expressed. And so by looking at this whole set of potential manifestations of disease, you get a better understanding of the whole person rather than trying to kind of look for individual characteristics that might help you characterize towards one diagnosis or another. Mm -hmm. So I have bipolar disorder, and I remember that they weren't able to diagnose that until 16, age 16, because so many of those symptoms as a young woman already going through puberty they're already present. So it's not really something you can diagnose until you're out of that phase in which you would be feeling those already. And it didn't make sense to me at the time. The older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, I guess we all do kind of have those symptoms up until a certain age, right? Anyway. <laughs> and so what are some interesting research that's being done about each of these categories? If you have anything that sticks out as like, ooh, this sparked for me. Well, just jumping off what you were talking about, Kirsten, trying to look at how these affect people across the lifespan and especially thinking about development and adolescence, mm. that is a huge area of research. So thinking about where we can identify risk factors, where we can identify therapies that maybe have been previously applied largely to adults, but where they might work in kids as well. Understanding how these intersect with those normal patterns of brain development is a super active area of research. I appreciate what you just brought up about, like, you know, things not being clear until you're older about mm -hmm. your mental or emotional state. <laughs> and, you know, I make music and I never looked at that as any kind of like emotional development or cognitive treatments of any kind. But, you know, now that I'm an adult and I think about like pattern matching and sound waves and sure. a different auditorial therapy. Music thing. therapists is a whole career. It's you a know? thing. Yeah. It's a thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, this entire time I was like, you know, therapizing myself. Going back to the evolutionary point, like we're always looking for, not always, but to soothe, to find mm. comfort, to mm. find safety and things like that. And yeah. music, luckily, kind of provides a lot of those things, the arts. I think what's really exciting is that with new tools that we're developing in science, we have a more integrative way to look at how everything from molecules to brain signals to behaviors are all connected mm -hmm. and how we can understand these behaviors at all of these different levels. And part of that really involves bringing more people <laughs> mm -hmm. into the picture as well. One of the things that's been challenging about studying uh, mental health conditions is that often they're subtle, right? Whether you're mm -hmm. looking at the symptoms in an individual person or the effects of a given treatment, mm. right? It's not black and white. And so in order to be able to kind of pick up those signals, we need much, much bigger data sets. And that's now possible. So really making an effort when we're looking at genetics or when we're looking at brain scans to bring in thousands of people and not just tens or hundreds of people. You know, you talked about pattern matching in music, Bay, but we're looking at pattern matching in yeah, science too. 100%. And the only way that you're going to pick up the patterns that matter is if you have a big enough set of data. 
the sample size, right? Is that what it's called? Exactly. Not See, to brag, yeah, but I, I knew that off Look the top of my head. Look at you busting out those chops. <laughs> Um, and especially, you know, because these types of disorders are complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a recent study that came out just earlier this year that shows that when you're looking at autism, for instance, there are 70 different genes <laughs> that mm-hmm. are strongly associated with diagnoses of autism. And, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> and how can we both create systems that support people and improve everybody's quality of life? as well as developing more personalized approaches to treatment for people who need it. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. Now, Kirsten, you have experience working with the organization. Our next guest is here to speak to us about, correct? Hell yeah. I love NAMI, which is what they go by for short. NAMI does like a walk. They have chapters all over. I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where else do they have it at other than Philadelphia? I think that they're based in Virginia. Then they have them in D.C. They have okay. them all over. So they're around. Yeah. They're around. They're but around. the Philly chapter rocks. Of course, of course. Yeah, and yeah. you took part in a walk run? Yeah. It's like a walk. <laughs> What'd you do? No, I was not running. Did you bike? <laughs> it's really cool, though. It's like their big fundraiser, and they have so many like cool vendors. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about categorization. Yeah, which, which is, is really important, right? Language, understanding what is going on, how to communicate with yourself and also other people outside of you about mental conditions and statuses and such yeah. and such. Do you feel comfortable communicating your own mental conditions and states that you're in sometimes? Yeah, I definitely do. But again, I know a lot of it just comes from my mom works in mental health, so I didn't know for a long time that it was something you're not supposed to talk about. I yeah. was always the person, and people were like, let's not talk about this at the dinner table. And I was like, why not? <laughs> where, yeah, talk to me about that. Like, how early on did you get that experience of like, oh, I shouldn't talk about this? Once you hit the point where you go to like sleepovers mm-hmm. and like friends' houses and their parent, you get to meet your friends' parents and see how they handle things or the things you are and aren't allowed to talk about. Sleepovers. I know. And I was like, my mom used to be a sex ed teacher and now she works in mental health. <laughs> so like, I don't know what you're talking about when you say you can't talk about stuff. Yeah, How Kirsten about you? was the one that came over and had condoms. And yeah, right. Like, what is going on at the they sleepover? They were like, don't invite that girl, please. <laughs> How about you? What questions do you have about categorization of mental illness? Because it's a big umbrella you know, we're developing language and an understanding about mental health is kind of like in a cultural zeitgeist a little bit. We all say mental health and mental illnesses, but there's definitely a difference and everyone experiences things differently, right? There has to be language and categories. And so hopefully we can figure that out. You know, she's got the answers, or at least I hope, because I don't have the answers. <laughs> Becca Lane, welcome to So Curious. Can you explain a couple examples of what advocacy is and what a day-to-day advocacy looks like for you? Sure. So one of the largest barriers for people seeking treatment is stigma. One might say cost, one might say just availability of treatment options, but it's actually stigma first because before somebody can remove that level of shame, surrounding their mental illness, they won't even seek treatment. So what we try to do through education programs is to educate people on what mental illness looks like. Whenever we do any of our education programs, we always have somebody who is living with mental illness or has been impacted in some way to share their personal experience. So again, people can see what living with mental illness looks like. It's not just what you see maybe on the street or in a movie or, you know, on TV. 
one in four people in the United States alone live with a mental illness. So chances are, you know, somebody who is living with a mental illness. So we try to show that it's it's not something to be ashamed of, like I said. And then, you know, we have our NAMI walk, which is a huge fundraising event for us because everything that NAMI offers is free of cost to participants, but it's not free for us. So we do need to raise money, but it's also a great way for people to come together and really spread that message because, like I said, one in four, right? People have breast cancer, for instance, and people talk about breast cancer, having breast cancer, being survivors. They celebrate it. They have their huge walks. So by having these walks, these NAMI walks, we're able to, again, spread that message and have people with real experiences feel unashamed. Beautiful. I we love also it. work with the city in a lot of different ways. So it's not just educating everyday people or people who are impacted on a you know regular level. We also work with the police doing crisis intervention training, correctional officers, police officers. We just started working with the Philadelphia Fire Department, the EMS, to help educate them again. With the police, for instance, one in four individuals who are killed by the police are in a mental health crisis. So we're trying to educate first responders on what a mental health crisis looks like. They're the first responders. They're the people who need to learn how to like de-escalate and then take the next step to maybe they need to go to a hospital, not to jail, things like that. Well, Becca, I appreciate you bringing up that category of crisis, right? So, mm. you know, today we want to talk about the different categories of mental health issues and all the, the different categories that they fall under. What are NAMI's definition for mental health and then mental illness? Could you differentiate those two things? There's many different schools of thought that go into this just because there's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, there's WHO. But we try to say now mental health conditions when we're talking about mental illness, mental disorders is also used. So mental health conditions is more of like an umbrella term. Mental illnesses generally are referring more to mood or thought disorders, disorders that affect the way that you are able to function daily because of your thoughts and your behavior and feelings. So depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, uh, those are disorders, a bipolar disorder that would really fall under that category. Personality disorders are a separate category. And there's crossover because some personality disorders, especially like borderline personality disorder, has a mood element, presents somewhat like bipolar disorder. And then there's substance use disorder is what it's like officially called. So a lot of times you'll hear people say like, I'm an addict or they're an addict or an alcoholic. For NAMI's sake, you know, trying to erase stigma, shatter stigma, we like to use person first language. So we would say I'm somebody who lives with substance use disorder because I'm a person. I'm not my illness. Yes. Yeah. No, oh, it's so important to say. I love too. that. You talked about stigma, which we've been discussing a lot on this season, because, I mean, you cannot talk about mental health without talking about the stigmas that go around it. What are some ways that you feel like as everyday people can adjust our language better around mental health? Like, is there something you hear all the time that you're like, we need to get that phrase out of here? My biggest one is commit suicide. When people say commit suicide, like that word commit, you commit a crime, you commit a sin, it connotates blame. Where suicide 
it's the end result of a mental health condition that's devastating, but it's not somebody's choice. It's not a moral issue. It's not a criminal issue. It's a mental health issue. I have a sister who I lost to suicide, and I'll say she lost her battle with mental illness, like you would say about somebody who had cancer, you know? Yeah, and I've heard in the last year, I think, is the first time I hear on when I hear people on podcasts or on the news talk about suicide and they will say died by suicide. Died by suicide. Yeah. Right. As opposed to commit. I never thought about that connotation that it has. And it's really important to examine our language. I really appreciate you bringing into this conversation, like being careful about the labels that we slap onto people and slap onto conditions. And, you know, the term trauma tends to get thrown around a lot in everyday conversations. People say, oh, I'm triggered. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mean we just say so many things colloquially. Trigger is a big one. I've tried to stop using the term trigger. And it's hard because it is something like when I went through treatment for my mental illness, it was something used all the time. It's become something that we've had to think about it a lot because it's something that kind of sees gun violence. Mm -hmm. Mm. And... Gun violence is an epidemic of its own proportions. So it's not helpful, especially with people who are dealing with trauma and especially related to gun violence. It's not a helpful term. I try to use terms like activate, like that activating situation. We'll talk about trauma as well as it relates to mental health. What does that mean specifically within the mental health context? I heard a definition of trauma once that said that going through a painful situation without an empathic witness. Um, And I just, I love that. Trauma can be such a wide variety of circumstances. It's really about the way that it impacts the person who is experiencing that situation. A lot of times people throw around PTSD and that's also something that irritates me. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Because I also am somebody who has lived with PTSD. PTSD is something that has like very specific criteria. Anybody can have, like I said, a traumatic response to a painful situation or a difficult situation. When it becomes something like PTSD, it lasts for a really long time and it impacts the way in which that individual is able to function. So there's a lot of different examples of trauma, but it really, I think it depends on how the person is impacted by it. What would you say might be uh, some repercussions of the misuse of the word trauma? What are some of the negatives? Well, I think it invalidates the experience of those who have actually experienced trauma and have not just experienced it, but have had severe reactions to it. Yeah. So how does language we use impact our perception of mental health? You know, and how can it create stigmas and how can we stay away from those stigmas? For instance, like if you see the homeless man walking down the street yelling and cursing psychotic, I mean, that's a psychotic episode generally, they might feel like, well, I'm not like that. So therefore, I don't need treatment. I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm not that sick. I know that was the case for me. Like I, you know, would hear people talk about what alcoholism and addiction looked like. And I'm like, that's not me. And it took me a long time to get treatment. Also, just the way we talk about what treatment looks like can create stigma around getting help. Like if you talk about it, you're going to get locked up in an asylum. Yeah, right. The fear of being like 302'd involuntarily committed for just like mentioning that you're feeling feelings is I can see why people would be like, oh, my gosh, if I say anything to a doctor, you know, and I can see how it would be really hard if you're like, oh, 
I have kids. I can't say that I possibly have mental illness. What if they take them away? You know, that's especially true for two different categories. One is young people, youth, teens, because they're going to get in trouble. Yeah. If they Mm -hmm. go to their school counselor because they're minors, the school counselor generally does have to report depending on what is being talked about. So that's what their fear is, is getting in trouble. The other category of individuals is law enforcement or first responders. Mm. I actually did a presentation at the Department of Homeland Security. That was very weird. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) and that was one of the things that I was being told was that they are scared that if they even say like they felt depressed or anxious that they're going to have their gun taken away and put on desk duty. And, you know, feeling depressed doesn't necessarily mean you're like suicidal. It can be episodic. You can have moments of depression and it not be even a diagnosed mental health condition, you know, so. So there's a lot of work to be done because that can't be helpful, right? Yeah. And it's scary to think about somebody who is in a position of power like that, who actually is struggling being afraid to speak up and say something because they don't want to lose their job, but then also possibly putting themselves and other people in danger because they're not speaking, you know, and it's just getting worse and worse. Is there anything, one thing, a couple sentences, action items you would like people to take away from this regarding how they treat mental health daily, overall, whatever it may be? I do just want to say it's a lot more common than you think. Mm -hmm. One of our phrases that we use is everyone knows someone. But it's really important to pay attention to the way that you speak to people because one of the things also is validation. People who live with mental illness need to be validated for their feelings. So I think it's important to pay attention and educate yourself. And the more that we do talk about it, though, like don't stop yourself from talking about it just because you're afraid of what to say. Educating yourself is important, but the more that we do talk about it, the more people will feel that they're not alone. And that's really where the most help can come from. What is your podcast, by the way? Yes. All right. So our podcast is called the YANA podcast, which stands for You Are Not Alone. And each episode features a young person sharing their mental health journey. We started it in the beginning of the pandemic. Usually we go to schools and talk to young people and share stories and everything. And we weren't able to do that anymore once the pandemic began. So we thought we would still give an outlet for young people to hear stories. It's Yana Podcast, one word. Cool. Nice. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Becca Lane, for agreeing to come on to the show. We really appreciate it. I think understanding those nuances and I love how she described trauma and kind of pairing it with empathy. Yeah. How the function of trauma is in tandem and shoulder to shoulder with empathy, you know, and the lack thereof sometimes. I also feel like one thing, Bay, that I really appreciate about you is you have hit the like ultimate nirvana of empathy. (laughs) I feel like you are one of the most empathetic people I know. Oh, I appreciate that. And sometimes, I don't know if it's just because I've always been on like psychiatric medicine that makes me a little less emotional, but sometimes you'll ask questions and I'll be like, I never even thought of that. I've been called an empath in the past. I think it really functions inside of uh, my brand of curiosity. Uh Uh-huh. Because I can't sit in your shoes or anything like that. And I'm like, what is that like? Tell me. Would uh, you say that you are so curious? I think. Uh, I think I'm so curious. Oh, you said the name. (laughs) 
All right. Well, be sure to join us next week when we uncover the mysteries of genes and hormones, which is definitely a mystery to me. I don't remember any of that from a science class. How they affect our behavior and how has our understanding of them changed over time? And these are the instruction manual for what makes us a person, what makes us tick. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast so you can uncover those mysteries with us. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Montefusco, Jayatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. See you next week. Go Birds. Go Birds.